1: Leslie Feinzeig joins us on Money Tales this week. Leslie grew up in Costa Rica. She describes her family as immigrants to that country who endured hard lives. She came to the U.S. as a visa-dependent business school student and soon realized that staying here for her career while still tethered to a visa meant that she was stuck taking jobs with large companies who could sponsor her. This meant continually working for her resume. But Leslie is an entrepreneur at heart and this was frustrating. Ultimately, she got a green card and everything for Leslie shifted. That's when she developed her what's the worst that could happen approach that led her to start her own venture capital firm where she's letting her resume work for her. Let me tell you a little bit more about Leslie. She is a technologist, operator, and startup founder described as an industry trailblazer by USA Today and a contributing writer for Fortune Magazine Fast Company, and TechCrunch. Leslie is the founder and general partner of Graham & Walker, an early-stage VC fund investing in women-funded tech companies that solve deeply human problems, and the Female Founders Alliance, the most prominent community of VC-backable women founders in the United States.
2: Here are three key money topics Leslie hits on in this conversation. First, how having ample savings paved the way for Leslie to take risks with her career because she had a fallback. Second, how as a VC doing fundraising, Leslie sometimes has to make hard choices to not accept money when it doesn't feel right. And third, how just over 2% of venture capital has been investing in women-founded companies and what Leslie is doing to change that. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Leslie Feinzeig.
1: Welcome to the Money Tales Podcast. I'm Cami e. Doder.
2: And I'm Sandy Breaker.
1: Sandy, I love what you sent over to me yesterday as we prepared for this conversation.
2: Yes, I was on the Graham and Walker website and I saw a quote staring me in the face that I loved Money has no gender, something that Catherine Graham said.
1: Oh, and I love Catherine Graham and I love her story. I uh, found it really inspirational when I read her bio. And I'm curious
2: when you think about money, does it have gender to you, Sandy? It does not have gender to me. Though I have a lot of experience talking about money with people of different genders, and everyone has their own orientation to it.
1: Money, I do think of money on a feeling standpoint, has some male qualities. And I think about just words I would use that's more female around value.
2: How does that come to play for you? When I think of money,
1: my first thing is like, the goal is to win and to amass most. And when I think of value, there's the dollar amount, the psychic benefits, all the things that contribute to happiness. And one component is money because it pays for the things you might do or pays the debts or creates opportunity. And then there's the things you do that bring value.
2: And you see that as more of a female trait.
1: That's where my brain goes.
2: Very interesting. I think there's more to explore on this. I'm glad that we're gonna be talking with the founders of Groundman Walker today.
1: Absolutely, well, let's bring her in. Welcome Leslie Feinzeig to the Money Tales podcast.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. Would you introduce yourself? And in doing so, share a couple pivotal moments that have impacted you and really influenced who you are today.
0: I'm the founder and managing director at Graham Walker Venture Fund. We are an early stage venture capital fund investing in, I like to call it, deeply human problems. We were born from a community of women founders that I started when I was out trying to raise venture capital for my own company back in 2016, 2017. And so the evolution of Graham and Walker has been it started off as a little Facebook group and it became over the years the biggest community of women founders of VC backable startups in the country. And even though I have a very, very different background as a technologist and a product manager and a strategy consultant, I decided partway through this journey that if I was going to dedicate my life to making other people's companies more successful. Then I wanted to be investing in them too. And so I became a little bit of a reluctant venture capitalist. The sort of deal-making part of the job is not a natural fit for me. Like I'm much more of a builder. I'm much more of a value creator than a money grabber, I guess. Kind of harking back to your earlier conversation. That's probably the biggest life pivot in both of those things. The creation of the startup and the Facebook group happened when I had my first baby. And the creation of the venture capital fund happened when I was pregnant with my second baby. Wow, you're serious about getting into creator mode. Yeah, like something happens when I have babies. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, all of a sudden, I just go for it. I feel like I have less to lose. I don't know. I know it's not normal for other people.
1: Leslie, we'd like to bring you back to even your childhood to get a sense of how money was handled in your home. And when did money start having meaning to you?
0: I would say for context, I am the granddaughter of refugees. My grandparents tried to emigrate to America from Poland during the pogroms in the 20s and 30s, and they couldn't get into Ellis Island. And so they kept sailing south and they ended up in Costa Rica, which was taking immigrants. Two generations later, I was born and raised in Costa Rica. My dad was born in poverty. His mom had been widowed. And everybody just had like really, really hard lives. They were very poor in Poland and then they kind of left with just about nothing. And so I was raised as like, you work hard, you don't take anything for granted. I was raised to really value education. This is part the sort of immigrant come from nothing kind of mentality. Also the fear of everything being taken away because like their whole families were murdered afterwards in the Holocaust So it's part that and part, I don't know if this is like a Latin American thing because the economies are not as solid as they are here (laughs) and as it used to be here in America, right? Like for example, in Costa Rica, we don't have federal deposit insurance. The other thing that I recall from my childhood is an aversion to debt. I remember the first and only time in my life that my dad took on a loan and it was to purchase a property. And I remember... How much he had to think about that. I was like 13 and I remember the conversations at the dinner table about like, can we really take on more of like a monthly outlay of capital? And it was $5,000 a month. I have like this very specific memory. I remember when he finished paying it. And so, yeah, I came to America and in America, people leverage themselves very easily. And that is something that is very, very different for me. And the other part was I ended up growing middle class. We were fine. I never lacked for anything. But I tried to sort of make my own path here in America. I came without any savings, with a full scholarship to go to Harvard Business School. I still ended up in debt because living expenses were not covered. And it's quite expensive (laughs) to live here, go to business school. I couldn't work because I was on a visa. Or at least during the year, I couldn't work. I could work in the summer. And so I think very differently about money. I grew up quite conservative about what you think you do and how much you sort of put away and save and what you do with it.
2: Leslie, you were growing up with these lessons of work hard, avoid debt, cover your expenses, embrace the educational opportunities that you have. When were you starting to process and think about money for yourself and the role it would play in your
0: life as you were growing up? It's never been a focal point And I guess the fact that it's ever been a focal point is a point of privilege. I haven't lacked for anything. I graduated from the number one MBA program in the world. And I went into a high paying job and I paid off my loans within a few years. And then I got married and between the two of us, we're fine. Like I'm married to a software engineer. It's more like to the extent that there's nothing to worry about. That's sort of as far as I think about money. But even as I say that, there's like a giant hypocrite light (laughs) that's like flashing in front of your eyes because like, I'm Margaret educated. You know what I mean? I don't invest our money. I run a venture capital fund and I think about money as it pertains to the future of these businesses and how they're going to change the world. But if I think about our household finances, my husband does it. I don't think of it deeply because I've been lucky enough to never have had to beyond some form of safety net and getting out of debt as quickly as I could because I grew up with that aversion to debt, which I realized is a very cultural thing that is not something that when I talk about it with my American friends, they necessarily share or understand. Like mortgages, the idea of having a mortgage was bonkers to me. Like when we signed our mortgage for our house, I giggled the entire time, like the nervous guy was like, I have no idea what I'm signing here, but oh my God, okay, like are these like hundreds of thousands of dollars dear God, what are we doing? I was just like giggling the whole time and the mortgage officer was like looking at me like, what is wrong with this girl? And I was like, it's okay, like we can afford it. It's better than paying rent. And I, it just sort of never occurred to me. So
1: Leslie, you mentioned going off to Harvard and obviously what a great opportunity. And, and- you get a scholarship. Great opportunity, but you're on a student visa, so you can't work. Oh my gosh, how did that feel when you were trying to pay your bills because you have to eat and you have to have books and you have to have housing? How'd that
0: feel? Super stressful. So, first, I should say my earning potential when I moved to America totally different. My salary from my last job before I moved here to my first job after business school was like literally 10 times higher. It was like 10X. That's how little I made in Costa Rica. And you know, it was a six-figure salary. It was like 110K a year or something like that. It wasn't like a banking salary or anything like that, but it really changed my earning potential. But at the same time, because I was an immigrant and visa dependent, it severely limited my employment options. Also, I graduated business school in 07, which in 07 was still kind of top of the market. Very quickly, everything started to fall down. Going into 2008, 2009, when like all of the waves of layoffs were happening in tech and across the economy, it was an incredibly stressful time. Because if you're on a visa and you get laid off, you have six weeks to find another job or leave the country. And nobody really wants to give you another job because they have to justify you. They have to like take your visa and justify it. So it was a really, 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 really stressful time. And it continued to feel very stressful. As I say that, like it wasn't money stress, it was safety stress. It was like, can I continue to be an employer? Do I need to drop everything, everything that I have worked for, have to lose it basically and start over somewhere where I'm not going to be able to have the type of career that now I know is possible for me. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, and the other thing is, if you're visa dependent, you're going to the jobs where you can be sponsored. And those jobs are in large companies. And my soul was dying inside. I'm not built for a corporate career. I'm much more of an entrepreneur. And so those years were just hard, doing the work and doing as best as I could and whatever I could do to like keep growing and avoid a layoff. And then it all kind of changed the combination of the economy digging out and being less afraid of layoffs. My green card finally coming through and then eventually getting married, which was a few years after the green card, all of those things together changed my circumstances very dramatically. That's why I feel like my real career started when I was pregnant with Dora, because that was like a year after I got married. And at that point, we had a mortgage, but it was shared and it was well within our means. I didn't have any more student loans. I was no longer visa dependent. I think it's the first time that I decided. I'm not going to work for my resume. I'm going to have my resume work for me. And it was like a complete life-changing moment. It sounds like you achieved that freedom that you were looking for
2: when you were in corporate and kind of tethered to the visa.
0: In retrospect, it does. In the moment, it felt like chaos. Like, what am I doing? Oh my God. Because I was also quitting the corporate world in favor of startups. And then eventually even quitting the startups to start my own company. Like I remember my dad being like, okay, but they pay for your health insurance. Like, what are you doing? I remember my dad asking once when I used to travel with Microsoft and he was like, and they pay for it? (laughs) They pay for me to go places and like meet customers and go to conferences?" He's like, that's wild. Why would you ever quit that job? You have a steady salary every month. Like that is unheard of. And so kind of leaving all of that behind, I mean, for a long time, I was like, what am I doing? And it only makes sense now because I was very successful at it at the end. But otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it. Like I would be back at Microsoft. If things hadn't broken my way, I'd be back in corporate world. It just sort of ended up happening that the little seed that I planted back when I was pregnant with Dora ended up being this really amazing thing called Graham and Walker today. But I don't know that I could have predicted that. (laughs) I don't know if I truly believe that I could be this independent and in control of my own faith. Tell us
1: about planting this seed and specifically having money conversations with your inner circle. Sounds like the conversation with your dad might've gone one way and the conversation with your husband, likely another. Would you share who were you talking to and how did you get to a point where you were ready to say, I'm doing this?
0: I had a lot of savings because I'd been single and working in well-paying jobs for a while. And so I had more savings than I had ever imagined. And the moment was like, I can live two years on savings alone and like still have a nest that It felt very safe. It also, in comparison with being visa dependent at Microsoft in an era of layoffs, I felt untouchable. Like what's the worst that can happen? That's what it is. When you go through the experience of almost like everything can be taken away from you any moment and you survive it, all of a sudden, like what's the worst that can happen is not all that bad. And I think that that's what turned for me. Maybe I embarrass myself a little bit, but I'm not going to get kicked out. I'm not going to have to start from scratch. I'm not even going to lose my house because thankfully we can afford it on one salary. That is the thing that really changed it. My husband has been extraordinarily supportive of me being happy and fulfilled and doing what I want to do, even if I didn't necessarily know what it was at the time. And so that is another big, big giant stroke of luck for me to like find the right partner who would put up with what I've put us through. I don't know that we had necessarily deep money conversations. We have had through the years, like, can we still afford this? Are we still okay? Mostly because I've been working on building a startup and then a venture capital fund, which is a small fund in the grand scheme of things. My earning potential is way higher outside than it is what I'm making and paying myself and what I've been paying myself. But one of the things that I think about is you create wealth by concentrating and you manage wealth by diversifying. Right now, I'm focused on building this one thing that will pay in the long term. And I have like less savings and less sort of drawdown potential today than I would have had if I'd stayed in that corporate career.
2: I think where you're going is very interesting, Leslie. You were never really focused on money because you saved a lot. You had enough financial support. That you've created for yourself. You had a lot of emotional support from your husband and others in your life. And you decide to give up some earning potential in a world that you were really comfortable with, but wasn't really fulfilling you to pivot and move towards something that really fulfilled you first on the startup side, then on the venture side. I'm curious,
0: how do you define success today? I've been asking myself that a lot. I don't know that I have an answer. I think that part of the decision, this would have been eight years ago when I left my last job, was about how do you want to live your life? We're in a podcast about money, but I actually think that the real scarce resource is time. That is, again, another very privileged thing to say because you can only quit a job if you can afford to. I live frugally. To this day, I drive a 2004 Honda Accord that is like really gross in the back full of like kid food (laughs) and like never gets detailed. (laughs) Around that time, maybe it was the pregnancy or like that feeling of time is passing that made me think really hard about this is my one life. I get one of it. You get one of it. It's finite. And how am I going to spend it? I also felt like. Up until that point, I was, what I think on the outside, you would call me a type A workaholic. On the inside, what that feels like is like, I just really like creating things. It is really fun for me. People have hobbies. I like writing and building and doing. And I've tried hobbies and they just kind of don't stick. But I do love working with my brain and like creating things with it. And so I figured like, that's probably what it is. That's probably who I'm going to be forever. This is who I am. And if I'm going to spend my life working this hard and doing all of this, then I should probably do it for something that is for me and that I care about. And it's not somebody else's dream. And that's what really compelled me to say, you know what, I'm not just going to go look for another job. I am going to try to build something on my own. And it took a couple of tries. Actually, it took multiple tries some of which you would not know about from the outside. Like they're not documented anywhere. Like they never made it to a customer. Some of them did, but it was that drive to own my time. That's the seed that was planted at that point that has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And at this point, I feel like so much has happened since then, but I don't know how I could do it otherwise. I think I am probably ruined forever. I don't know that I could ever go back to doing something with my time that is not as meaningful and as important and as impactful as the female founders, Lance and Graham and Walker have been to say nothing of when you do this, like when you get to this point that I am, you get to choose who you work with. And holy cow, that is the biggest privilege to like, really just pick your people. Sometimes it's as easy as hiring them. And sometimes it is as hard as like not taking money from someone that doesn't feel right, which is, let me tell you, when you're the, the person fundraising, really hard to leave money on the table when you have to pay salaries and like really, really hard. But you've done that? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. More than once. Fantastic.
1: What a position to be in.
0: It's hard every time. And it's stressful because we're not huge. We're not flush. Like we're $10 million fund right now. That means that our fees, how we pay for payroll and all of that is very, very bootstrapped. And it's all upside from here. We'll keep growing, but it's been a very long time that we manage this thing really, really frugally. And so absolutely, I've turned down customers and turned down investors. I even paid investors back because money sometimes is just money. And sometimes people feel like they own you.
1: Leslie, as you're talking, our listeners can't see what's behind you. So I'll read it. I just am smiling because it says, life is short live your dream and share your passion. And I'm over here like, that is what you stand by, which is so great.
0: That is what I stand by. This poster is called the whole sea Manifesto. People can find it online. One of our values at Graham and Walker is you got one life and use it wisely.
1: <laughs> use it wisely, great advice.
0: It doesn't compound like money does. It doesn't grow, it only shrinks. That feels like the more important of the two.
1: Such an important message. You're a venture capitalist, Leslie. And of course, all of us think, wow, you're the finance person. But you've already told us your husband, who's the engineer, does the family finances. (laughs) Uh, Was this something that you both discussed? Was it just sort of a natural thing? It sounds like you don't
0: really like to do that. Will you say more about it? I'm more of like a big picture thinker and he's more of a detailed bottoms up thinker. And so it suits our personalities. Like he likes to do our taxes. I love to hire someone. <laughs> I am a strategist. I think of money as in big buckets. I never really learned how to invest as in public market invests. You know what I mean? Like I never really learned how to do that because I never had the money to do that. Nor is it, I don't believe that that's how my dad had his savings. Like I think that he accrued property over time. I just learned don't take on debt, work really hard. The rest, I never really learned how to do that, nor am I super, super interested in it. I am a venture capitalist because I love building and I love helping other people build. And I know that down the line, that's going to turn into huge amounts of money.
2: Leslie, building in the way that you're talking about requires money. So tell tell us about raising money
0: for your funds. I raised Grumman Walker Fund One starting, actually, this is really funny. I started raising it in January 2020. <laughs> Your timing's great. I know. I like really timed that market really well. Just two months in, the world changed, and I ended up basically at home with my husband and my kids with like two demanding jobs and basically running an in-home daycare. <laughs> We had like a four-year-old and an eight-month old at the time. And so it took the better part of 18 months to raise a $10 million fund. Ten million is the most that you can raise while still having up to 250 investors. If anybody's familiar, it was basically like raising a giant angel round with no anchor. <laughs> like no single investor was more than like five percent of the fund. And so it was a lot, a lot of pitching. It was a few hundred investors that I reached out to, a few hundred that I pitched. I ended up having 105 LPs, individuals, corporations, and families. It took a really long time, maybe like six months to a year to raise the first million. It took another six months to a year to raise the next 8 million. And then it took two days to fill it. (laughs) Like the last was like, the night before the press release, I'm still getting emails from people that wanted to participate. I think something like two thirds of my investors are first-time VC fund investors. Not 100% overlapping, but somewhat overlapping is that about two thirds are women or husband-wife teams.
1: Did you see a difference when you were pitching men and women?
0: Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes,
1: a thousand percent. Describe a little bit about that.
0: Let me tell you the origin of it, and then because it'll make sense. But so 2016. Dora is born. I start my company. I bootstrap the thing. It's doing really well. I go out and try to raise venture capital. I fail. And the process of trying to raise venture capital was like gaslit. Like, I'm like, I don't understand what is happening here. I'm really smart. I'm obnoxiously hardworking. I'm pretty obsessed. I don't like failure. I don't understand. All of a sudden, I'm like the cute mommy, like the one woman. And I just kind of didn't get it. And in the process of doing that, PitchBook published the first article to my knowledge with data that said that you're only 2.19% of venture capital have been invested in women founded companies like mine. And to me, that was very eye-opening and almost like a huge relief because it made me realize that the experience I was having was not unique to me. It was a thing that a lot of us were going through at the same time, and we were just kind of going through it quietly and in silence and on our own.
2: So it feels good to know that it wasn't you, but at the same time,
0: what a horrible problem to be. Yeah. I mean, but it was great news. Are you kidding me? I celebrated. Like, oh, amazing. Like, cause I had internalized everything as you do. I internalize everything and think that it's my fault because I'm not, I don't know, cause I'm not good enough or whatever. I'm not working hard enough or there's something wrong with me. And that was like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. I was like, oh, great. It's a systemic problem. Yeah. Cause like I'm kind of stuck with me. It is what it is. Like I am who I am. And so systemic felt in my screwed up head, far more addressable <laughs> than like fixing myself. <laughs> this. <laughs> this is therapy now. Around that time I started this Facebook group, I wanted to connect all the women that I met along the way that were also specifically raising venture capital with this idea that like, Hey, we're all going through this experience together. Maybe we can help each other. Maybe we can open doors. Maybe we can turn on lights. That Facebook group started doing some events to connect people to each other, to get investors in front of us, to like answer the real questions. And that became the Female Founders Alliance, which today has more than 4,000 women-founded companies that are a part of it. We've been called the White Combinator for Female Founders by TechCrunch we have supported 400 founders in their fundraising journey. They've raised more than hundred million dollars in pre-seed capital. So this is a very special, very, very special community. And when I went out to raise the fund, when I would talk to women who are not necessarily in the VC world, like in startups, et cetera, they may not have kind of understood that part of it. But what I can tell you is a hundred percent, a hundred percent without fail, a hundred percent of the time that I talk to a woman above a certain age, which is not that old, but like kind of thirties or older, all of us, every single one has a moment in her career when she realized that she was having a different experience than her male peers because of her gender. We all had that moment, all of us. And that was an unlock moment in my pitching conversations. Because all of a sudden it felt like not only were they kind of thinking about an investment decision, but they were also making a change for the world. It's like, what is venture capital, if not the fastest way to get a company from two guys in a basement to list it on the NASDAQ? That's what it is. It's fuel for IPOs. And that's the goal here. The goal is I want to invest in so many companies and have them listed on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange that by the time Dora and Ruth graduate from college, they walk into a job fair and it's 50% women-founded companies that IPO. And those are the companies that I want to invest in. And that is extremely relatable and very powerful to both women and men who kind of get it or are fathers of girls. The fact that I'm also going straight after IPOs is very attractive to people who just want to make money. (laughs) So like, that is also a kind of upside. The flip side was with women, their numbers were universally lower, like very cautious. Even if it's like, I talk to women who are ultra high net worth and they would still do like 75K or 100K, like 50, very conservative check sizes. I'm assuming that the rest of their net worth is being donated. Or is in very safe things that they don't touch. I also found, at least in my experience, two more things that I would call out. One is very rarely would they be willing to share the deal with their friends in the same way that men did. Men share deals and it is part of their superpower. Like they go around the poker table and they invite each other to deals. It's sort of like a cool thing to like invite someone to this amazing opportunity. Like, Hey, what are you seeing? Women. We don't. We ask for donations from each other, but we don't share deals. Unfortunately, that means that it is much harder for me to get that network effect. I remember straight up women telling me, I'd be like, how can I help you? And I'd be like, can you think of two girlfriends that are high net worth that might want to participate? Oh, I never talked to my girlfriends about money. That's just awkward. Well, then how do I get this thing off the ground? Because I can tell you, your husbands are talking about money. Your husbands are sharing deals. That was the second really big thing that I found along the way. And then the final thing is, again, I think I already alluded to it, much, much, much more likely and much more comfortable with the concept of donating than the concept of investing. And that's hard because we live in a capitalist society. And the way that you change a capitalist society is by changing the flow of capital. And you do that through investing. The sort of donation is like the terminal point of money. Investing is a point of growth for money. It was just a harder conversation in general because there was this discomfort with the idea that like, no, it's okay to be wildly ambitious with your money and with your time. It's okay to want to grow it. And it's okay to invest in other people who also want to grow it, who also want to grow that nest egg. These are great observations
1: because to change them, now we can talk about it more.
2: Let's say I love that you really brought to life the idea of hard to fix yourself, but you'll take on a systemic problem (laughs) and really try to wrap it around. I applaud you for what you're doing and really appreciate you sharing your insights because those insights do help us change the world and really highlight the importance of talking about money and having these deep conversations with each other, and with our friends, with our family. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
0: I'm starting to teach my daughters about money, which... I find that to be even harder than it was for our parents because now money is not physical, right? Like it's like a credit card or like a Venmo. I remember when I was a kid, I was taught about money with actual physical coins and bills.
1: Oh, Lizzie, it sounds like a great conversation. Before we let you go, would you share where's the best place for our listeners to find you?
0: I'm very active on Twitter. So you can look for at Leslie Finzeig on Twitter. And then you can visit and learn about Graham and Walker at www.gramwalker.com. There's a newsletter that you can sign up for there full of resources and news around funding women-founded companies. And I'm on LinkedIn.
1: Leslie, thank you again for sharing your journey and a lot of what you're doing to change the world around money conversations. Thank you very much for joining us on Money Tales.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to Asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.